Okay, good evening, everybody. Welcome back to the Mythgard Academy. Uh, where were we? Session three of Sauron defeated tonight. Good to see everybody back again tonight. Um, we are marching our way through. This is the second to last. It is our penultimate session on the history of the Lord of the Rings. Um, there will, of course, be more in a sense in that when we get to volume, remember I talked about how when we get to volume 12 uh, in uh, the peoples of Middle-earth, uh, there will be a big section on the origin of the appendices <clears throat> and how he came to that stuff. Lots of really interesting stuff to look at there, but um, I don't want to talk about two-thirds of volume 12 in the middle of talking about volume 9. I think we'll get, I'm, you know, I don't want to prejudge what the electorate is going to choose, but I suspect we're going to make it to volume 12. Uh, so uh, that'll be good. And when we get there, we'll talk about that. Besides which, I said semi anyway. I mean, it's not like it's not part of the Lord of the Rings. It's published with the Lord of the Rings. But really, I th I, I'm not really sure that I would put it in exactly the same category. Um, I mean, as as we know, as we can see from Unfinished Tales, right? The period after he finished writing The Lord of the Rings began this sort of really fertile period of him fleshing out this world that he, you know, discovered through writing the story, right? And we've been looking all the way through the history of The Lord of the Rings at the ways in which these sort of things opened out before him, right? So many of them so totally unforeseen uh, earlier in the story. Um, and having discovered them, right, and having found out what happened in his story, there were so many unanswered questions that he wanted to go back and answer. And, and really, I, to, to me, the appendices are like the first part of, of that sort of next phase rather than the last part of the story writing phase of The Lord of the Rings. Yeah, again, like they're published with the Lord of the Rings, so it's obviously kind of part of the part of the process. Um, but um, but that's why also, again, to me, that's why I can feel OK with just continuing to read it in the way that Christopher put it forward. Um, it does break the chronology of Tolkien's the development of Tolkien's ideas here in part, of course. But um, but at the same time, it's it's not like, you know. History of the Lord of the Rings to be continued when we get to the appendices. At least I don't really feel that way. Anyway, hi. We're gonna we're gonna move on. Actually, first let me do a few quick announcements. Uh, they shouldn't take too long, but I have a bunch of things kind of going on uh, and some things that I want to make sure to let people know about. First, uh, we have talked our venue into giving us another week to take uh, registrations, which I am always fighting for uh, at this time of year. Um, so we were told that we would have to give them our final numbers this week. We've talked them into taking them next week. So we are able to extend the deadline. The deadline was tomorrow, uh, and we've been able to extend it one more week uh, to next Thursday, the 13th. Uh, of June. Uh, so if you haven't registered yet, there's still time to register. A bunch of registrations come in today. That's really great. We're looking at a great crowd. We have as many people now as we had last year, uh, which is cool. Plus, of course, Mootcast moot attendees, and don't forget that. If you're with an extra week or no extra week, if you're not able to attend, don't forget Mootcast. Uh, for $75, you can get access to everything that we do. Well, well almost everything that we do. 
Um, all of our sessions, anyway. Um, there are a couple sessions that'll be uh, broadcast on Twitch, so those will be public for everyone, as, for instance, the Lojo stream that I'll be doing on uh, the live Lojo stream, which I always look forward to doing at Mythmoot. Uh, it's become an annual tradition. Um, and this year, by the way, in my Lojo stream, I'm going to uh, uh, travel the path of the Hobbit. So they just released, like yesterday, just released in, in Lotro, the Carrick uh, and the Gladden Fields, a new area of the game that they'd never done before. Um, so I'm going to start at the Carrick and explore the Carrick, and then I'm going to go uh, following the path of Bilbo and the dwarves through Mirkwood, the halls of the Elven King, Lake Town, and then to Erebor thereafter. So um, that's going to be really cool. Uh, Raymond, great question. When will we do the, our uh, recreation of the flight to the Ford? Friday, I think. Friday is when we have that scheduled. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm not the expert on the schedule. I kind of do what I'm told to do and be where I'm meant to be. But, uh, but I, the rumor I have is that it's uh, Friday is, it was when that schedule. Um, anyway, cool. So, um, uh, that's, um, anyway, so, 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 so they were, it, Myth Mood, of course, going to be wonderful this year. And I encourage everybody to be a part of it however you can, um, uh, because it's it's going to be really cool. But as I say, one more week to register, and don't forget about Moodcast. Um, we also have, um, last week, you'll remember, I announced that last week we had, unfortunately, to postpone our Mythgard Movie Club session on Camelot, our sort of celebratory, uh, let's talk about Arthurian adaptations right after we finished the Mallory class, and then we had to postpone it. Um, we have a date for that. We're postponing that until July 11th. So, you know, we, we're going to Come to the end of this month, we'll have Mythmoot, and then the 4th of July week after that, the Thursday following. So the 11th of July is going to be when we're going to do uh, the Camelot session. So for those of you who are looking forward to that, that's when it will be. And um, uh, a couple other things. Uh, uh, briefly, we're doing a, a short-term uh, promotion on our... Um, Anytime audit. So we're doing a, a special discount on the story of the Hobbit, one of our cornerstone Tolkien classes where I was looking at um, sort of some of the, the sources in it and analogs for the Hobbit and then going through um, the history of the Hobbit and uh, really thinking about the development of the story and what that meant for Tolkien and how that uh, how that came about. And then some of the later materials uh, and stuff as well. Uh, really, really fun class. Um, originally taught several years back it's been one of the uh one of the most um one of the most widely uh viewed courses uh, in signum's history actually it's been a really it's been a really fun class so uh that class is available at special $75 tuition uh for that uh through next sunday through the 18th of june if i remember correctly um and then finally uh next tuesday on june 11th um there is uh, going to be another uh, thesis theater. One of our Signum students is going to be presenting on her master's thesis. Uh, she's one of our philologists, and she is this is Sarah Waldorf, and she is presenting on the Old English dative case in Beowulf. Right now, you know. I'm not 100% sure whether or not that talk is going to be suitable for work or not. Sounds a little risque to me. Uh, but, uh, I mean, you, you I love philology, right? You know, I mean, that's like some next level stuff right there. Um, it's going to be, uh, it's going to be really fun. So that's happening next week, next Tuesday. Um, and, uh, yeah, good. And let's see, where are we next? Um, 
that's it. Oh, yeah. And then the last thing is just a reminder. I mentioned this before last week, but a reminder. Uh, no class next week. I'm not going to be doing any of my broadcasts next week. I'm going to be out of town. Uh, and uh, I'm going to be out of town. And while I'm out of town, I'm going to be uh, squirreled away like a monk in, um, in a little cell. Uh, and I'm going to be uh, uh, doing accreditation documentation writing. It's super exciting. Uh, so that's going to be actually kind of awesome. But anyway, so I will be off and I will be productive and I'm going to be traveling and everything. But when I'm back, uh, we'll have class again. So two, two weeks from tonight will be our next class. All right. Um, so that those that's what's happening here this evening. Um, okay, cool. So... Good. Just checking to make sure I covered everything I wanted to cover. Good. All right. Um, last week, we spent a while talking about uh, the poems, of course, talking about Sam's or especially isn't that poem, right? One of my very favorite of all of Tolkien, Tolkien's short poems. That is Sam's Song in the Tower of Kirithungal and looking back at the original version of it. Um, and we had gotten up to, uh, as I recall, the last slide that we were looking at was the rather striking moment when Faramir breaks the 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 rod of the steward over his knee right during the uh, 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 the coronation of Aragorn. Um, a really interesting shift, I think, when we look at the way that that's established, like as if to make it perfectly clear, to establish his political, that is Aragorn's political supremacy, right? Um, and make sure there can be no question in the eyes of anyone in, in Gondor that um, uh, that he would have any rival, uh, that, that, you know, that he would have no rival uh, to the much more sort of mythic thing. That by itself, I was just kind of reflecting on that one a little bit more uh, after class last time. It's kind of striking, right? It's surprising to me because... That's one of those things, as so often happens, you know, in reading Tolkien's drafts, that did not emerge the way I would have expected it to emerge, right? Um, so what I mean is, if I'd have had to guess going in, right, um, the ascension of Aragorn, right, the coronation of Aragorn, his his rise to kingship there in Gondor, um, does Tolkien begin in a place where he's thinking about practical politics and end in a more mythic place? Or does he start in a more mythic place and get more practical as he revises? Right. If I had to, if somebody asked me that question before I'd read this book, um, I would have been, or even, you know, any of the books, frankly, um, I would have totally guessed the second one, right. That he would have started with a mythic concept, right. Started with the, uh, because it's not only, a great mythic story, the story of the return of the king, right? The long lost heir of the kingship returning to the city that's been without a king and, and, and waiting and hoping that someday maybe a king would come back. You know, that's not only is that a mythic story, it's like a classic mythic story, right? I mean, you know, the long lost heir of the, uh, you know, come on, like that's, um, you know, really, really classic stuff. And it's almost like Tolkien backed into that. Right. I mean, he because it, it, it's not how it happens. He doesn't start with that story and then make it more practical as he revises. He starts with the with the more purely practical stuff. Right. Remember that like Aragorn, when he was still Trotter, was angry. 
Right? He was angry at that. I mean, the, 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 the Numenorians who got booted out of Minas Tirith back in the day were still bearing a grudge against the folks of Minas Tirith. Right? There was still bad blood there between the Numenorians who had been banished from Minas Tirith uh, and the people of Minas Tirith who had gone on without them. Right. So and, you know, we had elections and then Boromir getting snubbed and we didn't ever even learn. Right. In those early uh, plot projections, we didn't even really know on what premise the people of Minas Tirith were meant to elect Aragorn over Boromir. Right. Who was the son of the previous lord of the city um, and seemed to be, you know, a relatively good guy until he turned traitor. But um, of course, I'm not talking about published Boromir. Right. I'm talking about draft Boromir back in the day. Um but uh, anyway, so it, it's that's where he starts, right? <laughs> Stephen, I know I was thinking about that too, right? Stephen says you don't vote for kings, and it's that's the funny thing, right? Is that Tolkien like actually reversed the Monty Python joke there, right? Um, you know the the, the whole joke of of uh, you know the constitutional peasant segment of the Holy Grail, right? Is sort of having this you know, modern, highly practical uh, uh, sort of political analysis um, uh, juxtaposed against the mythic story, right? And you've got Arthur, you know, Graham Chapman doing his The Lady of the Lake, her arm clad in the purest shimmering Samite, right? You know, um, uh, as if the myth itself should explain it, right? I mean, that that is why I am your king, right? Um, uh, But anyway, it's... That's t- Tolkien was exactly the opposite. He was on the side of the constitutional peasant at the beginning, right? The people of Minas Tirith did vote for their king, and again, even there, even you know when he's writing the first draft of the the end, right after his, you know, the the return of the king story has finally emerged, like slowly emerged. Um, uh, you know, it's kind of, again, it's almost like it, it, it kind of closed in on Tolkien and trapped him, right? The narrative finally was like, okay, fine, right? It's, it, it's a return of the king story, after all. You'll remember even the trip uh, through the paths of the dead and everything was originally not even Aragorn, like Aemir was going to do that, right? And it was just a tactical thing, or not a tactical thing, really, a strategic thing, right? Um, let's steal a march on the southern armies and, and come through a way. It was like Hannibal crossing the Alps. It wasn't, um, again, it was it was not like the thing of destiny. Um, and but But again, even in this very, very late stage, you know, in this first draft of the coronation sequence, he's still, it's like, the story reads as if he's almost resisting the mythic elements, right? And the final version, of course, that, you know, which is what he got to in revision here, um, the we finally get like the full flowering of the mythic story, the full indulgence of it, including down to the coronation, the, the sort of mythic reenactment, right? Frodo bearing uh, the crown, right? So we have the juxtaposition of the ring and the destruction of the ring with the arrival of the crown, right? Symbolized by Frodo carrying it and then Gandalf taking it and, and setting it on, on, uh, on his head to show he is the, you know, the, the, the captain of the, the Lords of the West and the one who facilitated, I mean, you've got this, Highly symbolic, highly uh, um, mythical, and then him standing up and repeating the words of uh, of Alendo and everything. I mean, it's it's a um, full indulgence, right, of the mythic significance. And not only that, there's no more need for practical politics. There is no question. How many people in Gondor, 
right, are like, well, I don't know. I still think Faramir might make a better king, right? I mean, it's like not on the table anymore. We don't need to have a ceremony in which Imrahil and Faramir each hold half of the crown and put it on Aragorn's head in order to demonstrate to everyone very clearly that they are not claimants for the throne and that they fully support Aragorn. And so if you support Imrahil, you should support Aragorn, right? That's the kind of practical politics. That's the, the kind of practical ceremonials really common uh, in medieval coronations and stuff like that. That's exactly the sort of the way that you have to think in order to make it work, right? Um, but, you know, as we see in the published text, this is, you know, the, the, the final, as I say, the final flowering of the return of the king plot comes now when he, his arrival is is not just you catastrophic as far as bringing about a, a a victory on the battlefield, right, in the in Pelennor Field, but you catastrophic on a much higher level, right? Here he comes, borne up from the sea on the winds of myth and legend, right? Looking like Elendil himself returned, coming from Numenor and landing on Middle Earth and uh and and you know helping to rout the armies of Sauron. I mean this is the you know this is Alendo coming up out of the sea. This is like our Farazon as he should have been, right? This is amazing, right? Um, and this is the kind of thing, like that. that's the kind of story. This kind of mythic story is what I think a lot of us, um, uh, what, what a lot of us associate with Tolkien, right? What we think about first, what, what Tolkien is kind of best at. Well, I don't know. Best is a strong word. It's an absolute, and that's always tough. Um, but one of the things that he is <laughs> that he is better at than most other things, right? One of his top five things, right, is 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 capturing this kind of mythic experience, this kind of mythic height, right, in his story. Um, you know, the master, uh, 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 you know, invoker and manipulator of archetypes, right? Tolkien does that so so well, and yet when we look at his drafts, we find. Not only is that not where he started, not only is that that not the core and the you know the background, not only is that not like the skeleton upon which the rest of the story is built, it's like the opposite. It's 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 uh, you know it's something I won't say tacked on, but it's something that 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 grows out of it um, and seems almost to take him by surprise. So anyway, I am. Um, um, I definitely um, uh, found that very striking. And the more I was thinking about that that uh, first coronation scene, the more kind of mind-blowing I found that. But anyway, all right. Let us uh, carry forward. And actually, this is... Um, uh, well, never mind. I was about to talk about my projected length for the class, but I'm not going to get ahead of myself. Okay, this is the passage right after where we left off last time. Um and the slaves of Mordor he set free and gave them all the lands about Lake Nurin for their own. And last of all there came to him Khan Borihan of the wild woods and two of the headmen, and they were clad in garments of green leaves to do honor to the king. And they laid their foreheads on his feet, but he bade them rise up and blessed them, and gave them the forest of Druidon for their own, so that no man should ever enter it without their leave. Um, the... It's interesting how the 
And again, you can almost see a shadow of this same dynamic happening with Khan Buri Khan here, right? Um, we get three stages of the interaction between Aragorn and Khan Buri Khan, right? This is the first one where Khan Buri Khan himself comes to Minas Tirith, right? And, and bows down before Aragorn in the throne room. That's the first draft here, right? As you will recall, in many partings, uh, when he decide, he cuts this out here, and then in many partings instead has them meet the Woeses at the eaves of the wood. So when they come to the forest of Druidan, Han Bori Khan and the other two headmen in their honorary, honorary leaf garments, um, which I still find a little bit odd, clad in garments of green leaves to do honor to the king, because they thought that he would feel especially um, honored by the green leaves or just like they're wearing formal, this is woe's formal attire, right? Um, you know, discerning woeses, uh, uh, on festive occasions wear garments of green leaves. And so therefore they're wearing, you know, this is like the Sunday best of the woeses. Um, I, I presume that that's what it means, but, um, yeah. Anyway. Um, so, um, then he, uh, and then of course in the final text, as you will recall, he never meets Khan Bori Khan at all, right? He just comes to the edge of the woods. The criers, you know, cry out about you know the gift of the forest to the uh, to the Woeses and 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 let nobody ever disturb them again or enter the forest. And the, the you know they they beat their drums right to indicate that they've heard, and that's it, right? Um, but again, as I said, I I feel like you can see a similar kind of direction. That first impulse makes sense politically, right? That the Woeses would be among those who come before. Like they have to swear fealty to Aragorn, obviously, right? So coming in and laying their foreheads on his feet, right? It's a it's a it's a, it's a charmingly idiosyncratic way of of you know uh, you know making their oaths um, to Aragorn. There, you know, separating them from the re- the run of the mill of Aragorn's vassals, but nevertheless. Um, you know, still the same kind of dynamic, right? But then afterwards, after he, um, you know, he decides, no, no, wait, we don't want to take the Wozes out of the woods, right? We want to leave the wild men in the wild, um, but yet I still want to do the fealty thing, right? I still want to have them come before Aragorn and, and bow their foreheads down to his feet. Uh, and then after that, he's like, no, actually, it's okay, right? So the fact that the Wozes remain at the end a um just a a sound of drum beats in the distance is really cool right and really kind of preserves the mystique of the woeses right uh makes them uh really kind of increases their own uh sort of mythic standing right um as if like the you know as if they were there's almost like a, a kind of fairy element Right to the woeses in the way that this uh, the way that that plays out at the end. So again, to me, the trajectory is one of increasing. Um, I was about to say mystification. That's eh, not right. It's not a mystery exactly, but um, uh, in- making it increasingly um, uh, mythical. Yeah, um, yeah, um, mythification. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, 
Yeah, Carita, I agree. Carita says it also makes Aragorn seem more secure. Absolutely. Uh, Carita, you're right. It's a, it is a stronger, um, a stronger position for Aragorn, right? When the, because originally the Wozes come to him and they initiate, right? They come to him and they lay their foreheads on his feet. And once they do that, he's like, awesome. I'm going to reciprocate by giving you the forest, right? Um, So I agree with you, Carita. When he just does it without any invitation from them or, expectation from them right um uh it's it's much stronger uh and definitely makes him seem more secure i agree um yeah exactly created he doesn't need any any vows or exchange from them um the fact that they acknowledged the gift and 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 he accepts it right he doesn't demand uh you know an acceptance on his terms or anything he's like okay drum beats i get that'll that'll do right i'll take that um, yeah, I, I really, I, I like that better, but it's not just about my preferences. It's not just about what I like. It's, uh, again, it's about seeing the, seeing the direction, right? How is he doing this? And this is one of the things, the reason I've been talking about this stuff at the beginning here is it's one of the trends that I want to be looking at all the way through. I find his revision process fairly striking in this section. Um, not striking because it's weird, um, but striking because it seemed to me rather different from the process that we could see in other parts, in many other parts of the story. Not unique, but uh, different from how we often have seen um, Tolkien's chapters proceeding, right, as he moves through. Um, and so one of the things I want to look at as he's doing his revision, what's the, what's the direction? What's the trajectory, right? What, is the, what pattern can we see? in the kinds of changes uh, that he's making. Um, Yeah, good. Um, Yeah, good. Okay. Um, Yeah, interesting. Kate says it it, it read to her like he was trying to work out the nature of kingship in Middle-earth. Yeah, I I mean, I can see that, Kate, especially, again, sort of starting with a kind of a more... um, you know, medieval practical politics model, right? But then thinking, cause, though again, I, 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 I kind of want to go back to the mythic thing as well, right? Because it's not just any old kingship. It's Aragorn's kingship. So, which means, again, Kate, I'm not, that's not me disagreeing. That's me agreeing, right? And being like, in this way, he's kind of working out, well, if Aragorn is now, is the, you know, this ideal king, right? If he is, you know, the, like, the mythic king, right? What does that look like? What is, uh, 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 you know, how do we see the king who is the fulfillment of that kingly archetype? How do we see him acting, right? How would he act in these, in these ways? Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. Um, (laughs) yeah, no, Arthur, I don't think that I doubt that leaf by niggle is the name of a clothing line uh, of woe's formal wear. I doubt that that's true, though. I do uh, agree with you, Arthur, that um, uh, it would be kind of not that I would wish civil war upon the wild men of the woods, but the idea that there would would be a war of the woeses is also kind of attractive. And I have to admit that I was thinking like, you know, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the woes 
the woeses and roses rhyme, you know, just uh, there's so many potential for like horrible um, wild man of the woods romance novel titles uh, uh, with that. I really wanted them to have roses like a garland of roses so they could be woeses with roses uh, in the throne room. But anyway, the war of the woeses would be excellent. Anyway, OK, never mind. <laughs> On we go. Of course, one of the most remarkable events, and I've alluded to this many times earlier as we've gone through, one of the things that is very striking, you know, reading this, the history of Middle-earth for the first time, and also kind of revelatory, right, um, is uh, that... uh, Arwen, how late in the game Arwen appears, right? Um, It's very remarkable, right? And I hate to call, I hate to label Arwen merely an afterthought, right? Um, I don't want to, by, you know, calling her that or saying something like that, appear merely to diminish or cast aspersions on her character. Um, I don't think that her character is unimportant um, just because it was thought of late. I mean, again, in a sense, if we think about the pattern that we've just been looking at, is particularly with Aragorn and his rule, right? In one sense, the invention of Arwen and his marriage to Arwen, daughter of Elrond, uh, second Luthien, right, uh, is in one sense the final, I've been talking about the final flowering, right, of the mythic role of Aragorn. That's the final flowering, right? Um, the very last step, the last thing needed in order to complete the picture, um, to round Aragorn into or grow Aragorn into um, this uh, remarkably powerful mythic figure that we see at the end of the story, an elvish wife is the the one thing he was missing, right? To have him also, uh, in his marriage, recapitulate the story of Baron and Luthien here at the transition point, uh, you know, from the the middle days to the newer days. Uh, that's that's excellent, right? And so again, the fact that that occurs late in the game, in the sense that 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 occurs to Tolkien late in the game, is part of the picture, right? Um, you can hardly blame him for not having. Arwen, Aragorn's future wife, in mind from the beginning, certainly not when Aragorn was still the hobbit who wore wooden shoes, right? But even after he had become the Numenorean descendant of, you know, those who were banished from Minas Tirith, we're still very, very far from, you know, culminating uh, in uh, the marriage with, um, um, with the... Uh, um, uh, with the daughter of Elrond. But Bruce, you're absolutely right. Um, Aragorn telling the Luthien and Baron story was very early, right? In fact, as I've argued, you know, I will tell you the tale of Tenuvial when Trotter says that for the first time in my, in my view, that's the turning point of the entire story. That's when the Lord of the Rings blows up, right? That's the, the, in a, you know, positive sense. Um, that's the, uh, that's the, I won't say the real beginning. That seems a little bit pretentious. But um, anyway, that's the turning point. Um, So in that way, Bruce, bringing back Arwen and having 
Aragorn go from telling the story of uh, Aragorn and uh, of Aragorn and Arwen, telling the story of Baron and Luthien at the beginning, to finally completing the recapitulation of the story of Baron and Luthien at the end, um, works wonderfully, right? And once it happens, it feels completely natural. It feels almost inevitable, right? Like the final touch, which Tolkien finally saw, which he finally noticed was missing, right? So for these reasons, you know, to to call Arwen merely an afterthought, right, is, um, uh, is, is clearly not right. Um, Kate, I agree that's an interesting way to think about it, that as Aragorn became more mythic, Arwen became more necessary. Uh, Brian Dimmick was saying almost exactly the same thing there, too. Absolutely. Um, yeah, and Bruce, it is really fun to think of it, isn't it? That in the published work, it seems like Aragorn is telling the Baron and Luthien story because he's thinking about himself, right? He's thinking about his story with Arwen, whereas in, 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 in reality, in Tolkien's discovery, it was, it was exactly the opposite. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely. Um, so, um, uh, so anyway, yeah, this was, um, uh, this was the one thing it does do though, when, again, thinking about Arwen as, uh, as afterthought, or at least as very late addition to the story, one of the things that it does help to contextualize is why she doesn't play a bigger role, right? Um, is, you know, Arwen left back at home sewing, right? Like, I'm going to stay in her. My contribution to the story is that, like, I'm going to I'm gonna embroider you a, a standard. And, like, the standard's a big deal. Like, don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to downplay the significance of the standard and, and the added significance of the fact that it was made, uh, you know, wrought of living gems by the hand of Arwen. That's all great and everything. But still, like, at the end of the day... She's done nothing but sit home and sew while he's gone off and done this thing, and then she comes in to be given away to him at the end. And it certainly, um, it certainly contributes fairly significantly uh, to the overall effect, which has you know that that so many readers have experienced of you know feeling like female characters are kind of left on the shelf so often in Tolkien's work. Um, it's a little bit unfair, of course, under the circumstances, uh, given that this final, you know, the, the final apotheosis of the Aragorn story, which is his marriage to Arwen, doesn't, he's, you know, it's the last thing he discovers, right, about Aragorn's story. There was, there was, there was only so much he could have done, right? I mean, he really, um, uh, there wasn't, there wasn't time. Um, but, um, anyway, um, yeah, yeah. Um, so it's not, uh, it's one of the things that I think it's not, by the way, the perfect defense of Tolkien against the accusation of leaving women on the sideline, right? Um, uh, you know, one can still say, okay, sure, he added her, you know, he added her at the last minute. There wasn't perhaps time to go back and rework the entire story to make her a major character all the way, you know, have her be in the Fellowship or something like that. Um, But still... When, rest- when when restricting her to a minor role, you know, 
did she absolutely have to be restricted to the minor role of staying home and sewing? <laughs> right. You know, I, it's, again, it's, it's, it's not a perfect defense, but it does allow, I mean, I think it, it is important still uh, to keep that in mind as, as a kind of context for Arwen's comparative non-presence. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. Matt says, I'm surprised Tolkien didn't start over and write the Arwen story in alliterative verse. Uh, yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, an uh, uh, evil Dr. Cannon, I was just thinking a similar thing, right? When I was just saying he didn't have time, of course, I was like, well, really, Tolkien's, um, uh, <laughs> Tolkien's M.O., Right. Normally would have been like, OK, now let's go back and revise the whole Lord of the Rings. Let's let's go back and rewrite it, starting in chapter one, this time with Arwen in her proper place all the way through. And who knows what the story would have looked like had he done that exactly. Um, uh, you know, Kate, I agree with you. Uh, it might have taken some of the focus from Eowyn. I would be I would be interested to see um, what would have happened to Eowyn's role if it would have been diminished at all. I doubt it, but it could have been. And what role would he have given her? I'm not really sure, right? I mean, it's a really fascinating kind of question. Um, but, um, yeah. Anyway. Um, yeah. Okay. So, <laughs> Pippin would have had to stay behind. Okay, yeah, exactly. We would have had to vote Pippin off the island so we could include Arwen and still have the right number. And I don't think, by the way, I don't think that she would have come along. I mean, that is at the near the bottom of my list. If I had to guess what Arwen's role might have been had she um uh had she been worked into the story, had she been foreseen from the outset, I don't think she'd have been a member of the fellowship. I really don't. Um, that seems to me very unlikely. She could have played Legolas's role, Tony. Theoretically possible. Um, I, uh, um, I don't think so. Um, if I, I think it's not impossible that she could have shown up. I know that like several of you already in the in the questions box have already clearly been having flashbacks to, you know, Arwen at the Ford of Bruin in and, uh, the, you know, Arwen leading elves into battle at Helm's Deep, of course, uh, the first of which Peter Jackson actually did, the second of which Peter Jackson threatened to do, but didn't actually do. Um, I get that. But again, Luthien, right? Um would we have had something like my, my sort of highest aspiration for Arwen would it be would be to have something Luthien esque from her, right? A moment where she came and aided Aragorn and the Fellowship in a way which was parallel to, not identical to, um, and not as significant, like not beating up Sauron by herself, for instance, uh, or you know, with the help of and would she have had an awesome dog? I doubt it. But um, but for her to come and 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 give some significant assistance, her being out traveling by herself, agreed with you, um, uh, Eric, that it does make sense for Elrond to guard Arwen close to home, given the fact uh, that her mom was tortured to death by orcs. But don't forget, she exists before her mom does even. Uh, so the uh, the story of Calabrian being tortured by orcs postdates the invention of Arwen, so that doesn't determine it exactly. But anyhow, um, 
the uh, but yeah, that she would have come and 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 she could have come and done something like that. I I I could I could see that. Um, I'm not sure. Um, uh, I'm not sure what that would have looked like. I'm not sure where she would have, um, um, where she would have come in exactly in the story. But that I can imagine at the very least, um, even if she didn't do that, even if she wasn't out on her own, um, I don't doubt, oh, oh, Eric, sorry. The other thing I meant to say, I don't doubt that her father might want to keep her home to keep her safe, but so did Luthien's dad, right? Uh, very pointedly, uh, to the extent of locking her up in a tree, um, so I think that perhaps Elrond would have tried to keep her home, but I don't think if he had, that would have stopped her, right? So, again, you know, who knows? Um, uh, the other thing I think um, uh, is, had she not played a role like that, the next coolest role I can think of for Arwen playing in The Lord of the Rings would have been uh, when Gandalf returns and brings the messages from Galadriel, right, the verse messages to Legolas and uh, to Gimli and to Aragorn, I could imagine her doing that, like, or and like the the you know remember the the words of the seer and you know the paths of the dead and so, like, the, you know, her doling out uh, wise guidance is a thing I could see her doing, right? That would have been. Uh, that would have been a fairly easy role uh, to give her. But anyway, um, who knows? Who knows, you know, where, how, or if he would have given Arwen a bigger role had he had time to go back and rewrite the whole thing from scratch again. Um, exactly, Tarloniel. That would make her more Melian than Luthien. But again, like, I could see her, I could see her filling that kind of role. Um, but... Um, yeah, exactly, Kate. Have her send the Grey Company. Have her, uh, yeah, absolutely. She could even ride with the Grey Company. That would be the great, the the perfect topic. I mean, her brothers came down, right? Why, why couldn't she? She could have replaced Eldon and Elro here. Not that I would want to get rid of Eldon and Elro here, but again, like that, that 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 could have been that could have been possible. Um, would I necessarily have wanted Arwen riding along with Aragorn in the Paths of the Dead? I think that could work, but uh, you know, I'm not really sure. Um, Anyway, whatever. I don't know. Um, so, uh, anyhow, let me actually read the passage here. In the account of the riding from Rivendell and Lorien at the end of the chapter, it is not said in any of the texts that Elrond brought the scepter of Anuminus and surrendered it to Aragorn. This was only inserted on the final proof. Elrond's daughter is named Finduilas. Uh, at this stage, Faramir's mother was named Rothenel. We looked at that last time. And in A, my father added, after Finduilas, his daughter, and daughter of Calebrian, child of Galadriel. This is the first mention of Calebrian by this or any name. In the last sentence of the chapter, in A, Aragorn wedded Finduilas half-elven. This time, this, this name survived into B, where Faramir's mother, Rothenel, was changed to Finduilas, and Elrond's daughter, Finduilas, was changed to Arwen, called Undomio. So, yeah, she doesn't get the name Armin. She's going to be originally named Fenduilus, and then the ill-fated name of Fenduilus gets passed off to Faramir's dead mother, um, and that's uh, and that's all. Uh, uh, 
made a little bit uh, a little bit easier. Nancy, I know exactly. Naming her Finduilus makes me super uneasy. I mean, on the one hand, it's kind of cool to have her be like you know, Finduilus as she might have been, um, because of course, remember, Finduilus was in love with a mortal man too. And somebody was asking earlier, and I forgot to say, was the Turin story written uh, in this time? Yeah, numerous times, um, like four times already by now. He's written the the the, the Turin story, so yep, that's absolutely out there. Um, and um, anyway, so Finduilus, I think, is is would have been cool. But at the same time, for me, cognitive dissonance, right? Like, hi, I'm the Luthien figure, but I'm named Finduilus, right? So again, you can kind of do the, you know, Finduilus as she might have been thing, and that's kind of nice. But, uh, but, but it's it's again, I get kind of cognitive dissonance because Finduilus and Luthien, it's not just that they have different endings; their their stories are different stories, um, and uh, it's hard for me to just mush the two of them together in this way. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, Tony asks, is this before Tolkien decided that elves only use a name once? Yes, I think so, Tony. If I'm remembering correctly, that business with the elves is one of those things that he defines in the later period of world building. And let's think more about elvish culture and stuff like that, that happens in the later volumes or, you know, in the later part of his life detailed in the later volumes. Um, but at the same time, Tony, remember that itself doesn't necessarily, you know, he is not above, um, cannibalizing names from the Silmarillion, which remember is unpublished and un are never going to be published as far as he knows. Um, so it's not impossible that had he shifted Finduilus to here, that he would have changed Finduilus in the Turin story's name, right? Um, so who knows what that would have come down. Um, yeah, Yana was just asking the same thing. Exactly. I don't, I, I don't think it's necessary that that would have happened yet, but in any case, for, so for lots of reasons, I'm glad she didn't end up getting named Finduilus. And, uh, because Turin's mom can reuse the name and it's fine, right? Then we just get the echo and it's poignant and it's sad. Um, but it, uh, it doesn't, uh, it doesn't mess anything up. Um, okay. Uh, we talked about this slide before, but I wanted to just return to it briefly because we're going to be looking at, uh, just as we go through the, and, and think through the, the drafts of, of many partings and, and homeward bound. Um, uh, to remember where the plot is going and where wh- how he's thinking about this. Um, so remember, we had Gimli explains how Pippin was saved uh, at the battle, of course, before the Black Gate. Next scene, the host sets out from Kair Andros and read in the ships and passes into Gondor. Scene shifts to Merry and to Faramir and Eowyn. Return of King Alessar, his crowning, his judgments of Berethil, meaning Baragond. The hobbits wait, for there is to be a wedding. Elrond and Galadriel and Celeborn come and bring Finduilas, the wedding of Aragorn and Finduilas. Also Faramir and Eowyn. The end of the Third Age is presaged. What the rings had done, their power waned. So we've got we've got some exposition to do, right? Galadriel and Elrond prepare to depart. The hobbits return with Aemir to the funeral of Theoden, and then on through the gap of Rohan with maybe something or other and the Dunedain. 
They come on Saruman and he is possibly pardoned. They come to they come to Rivendell and see Bilbo. Bilbo gives him sting in the coat, but he is getting old. They come back to the Shire, added in margin via Bree, pick up Pony. Right, we got we got to go swing by and pick up Bill, and drive out Cosimo Sackville Baggins, who is clearly still the prime villain on the Shire front. Lobelia is dead. She had a fit in something which may or may not be a quarrel. Sam replants the trees. Frodo goes to Bag End. All is quiet for a year or two. And then one day, Frodo takes Sam for a walking tour to the Woody End. And behold, there go many elves. Here there be elves in the Woody End. As, of course, we know. Frodo rides to the Havens and says farewell to Bilbo. We discussed Christopher's theory that he just was making a mistake there because he was writing fast and meant to say Sam. End of the Third Age, Sam's book. Okay, okay, so just to remember, the this is his projection. These are the major plot events that he's thinking. So things that we can see, no Sharky as of yet. Saruman is pardoned. Saruman has a good ending here, right? Um, he is granted a pardon, presumably must have some kind of, probably, repentance, change of heart of some kind, I guess, if he's going to be pardoned. Um, okay. So those are the things that we um, uh, that we see here. Uh, and Steve and I agree. I, I also totally buy Christopher's theory that he meant to save Sam when he wrote Bilbo instead. And on the one hand, it's kind of a hard sell. You know, it's like, well, this thing that he obviously did write doesn't make sense. So let's pretend he wrote something else is kind of a dangerous way to go about this kind of thing. But under the circumstances, given how messy all of this is and how quickly he's writing, and it really makes complete sense to me. Um, and I agree, Stephen, Sam's book makes much more sense if Frodo was saying farewell to Sam and Sam is the one who is being left behind. Um, yeah. Um, well, Brian, there is, I agree, there is no strong, there's no clear mention of Frodo's suffering, right? Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, and that's the thing. I mean, the, the the way in which Bilbo makes sense is if Frodo's staying behind and Bilbo's leaving, right? Um, so Frodo rides to the Havens and says farewell to Bilbo, and then we get Sam writing the book. I guess, why has Sam written the book if Frodo has stayed behind? But again, Christopher's argument is in all, in every single time that Tolkien has seen forward to the end of the story he's had Frodo leaving. So why would that be not still be the case here? Um, anyway. Okay. So just to recall the overview, right now, let's look at the, um, the actual details. One thing that I noticed that really kind of struck me here, uh, again, sort of in relationship to that same kind of tra trajectory of our, of our revisions here. And so at last, after many days, fifteen, they brought King Theoden back to his own land, and they came to Edoras, and there they stayed and rested, and never so fair and full of light was the Golden Hall, for no king of the south had ever come thither before. And there they held the funeral of Theoden, and he was laid in a house of stone with many fair things, and over him was raised a great mound. 
the eighth of those upon the east side of the barrow-fields, and it was covered with green turves of grass and a fair evermind. And then the riders of the king's house rode about it, and one among them sang a song of Theoden Thangle's son that brought light to the eyes of the folk of the mark, and stirred the hearts of all, even those that knew not that speech. And Mary, who stood at the foot of the mound, wept. Okay. Um... I called this, I, my subtitle for this slide was Retrograde Motion. What I mean by that is, reading the draft here for some reason, uh, it's the, that line for no king of the south, no no king of the city of the south had ever come thither before. Um, that really kind of brought it home to me. Never so fair and full of light was the Golden Hall. Um, what I mean by retrograde motion is that this is not the way that things go, right? Everybody knows how things go in Middle-earth, right? Down. They're in decline. Um, the things that happen now are never as great as the things that happened in the old days, right? The the glory of, you know, the most glorious achievements in the modern era are lesser than the most glorious achievements of the older era. Um, everything is going in this one uh, direction, right? But not here. At the end of the story, we are getting... Um, you know, as we're talking about the passing of the older day, you know, the, the whole big picture of the story is still about that decline, right? The decline of the elves, uh, the, the decline and fading of the elves, uh, the, the, you know, we're going from the middle days to the new days and the dominion of men and, 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 you know, the, the wonder in the world is fading and going away. But in Aragorn's reign here, we get a, we get a, a, a resurgence, Right. The Golden Hall. So especially think about the the way this would seem to be set up with the lines of kings, right? With Amir being having been crowned as king of the third line of kings, right? And you know things it's the third line of kings. So Amir is in the position, he's parallel to Aeol the Young, right? At the head of his line. Like Aeol the Young. So he's both the heir of Aeol the Young and like the the sort of parallel to Aeol the Young. Um, but a distant parallel, right? Things are supposed to be diminishing. And yet we find that um, he has recapitulated, you know, Aemir and Theoden have, uh, you know, let's, let's give Theoden props at his own funeral. Um, recapitulated the ride of Errol the Young, and not only did they achieve something that was kind of parallel to, but lesser than their ancestors, it was even greater than the ancestors. When you think about the, uh, when you think about the, uh, the, the way that these kinds of echoes work, uh, these things which I've compared to, to, to typology, right? When we see that parallel, the same story from the old days being recapitulated in the modern story, um, like Sam, of course, and the Tower of Kirith Ungol, right? Sam singing like Fingon on Thangarodrum and uh, then being enabled to rescue uh, uh, Frodo, who uh, he hears responding, right, as Fingon heard Mithros responding to his song uh, on Thangarodrum. And yet, so it's like that, but it's small. Everything is smaller scale, right? I mean, Sam is great, but he's not Fingon. He's not a. He's not some kind of huge elf warrior, right? Uh, he's not an elf lord, uh, you know, future high king of the elves, uh, you know, f- future high, high king of the Noldor. You know, he's just he's just Sam. Um, but um, 
and but and that's the normal pattern, right? Uh, that's 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 how we normally see these things happening, right? Frodo is like Baron in and when he, you know, except instead of losing his whole hand, he just loses a finger, right? Um, he has the ring bitten off his hand like uh, Baron has his whole hand bitten off with the Silmaril inside it. Um, and then they're taken back by the same eagle, right, afterwards. Um, anyway, again, point is, we get that diminishing, right? Every time we see the echoes, just about every time we see the echoes, it's lesser, it's smaller. It's a, it's just it's it's like a scale replica of what happened earlier on, um, and that's why echo is one of the also the metaphors that I've often used for this kind of thing as well. It's like you get the original sound, then you get that sound repeated but more softly, right? And repeated again but more softly, and that tends to be the pattern. Um, uh, you know, even down to Mary uh, recapitulating the, you know, Mary surrounded by foes, the last standing on the battlefield by Parth Galen, right? Hewing the hands off of the orcs that, that are reaching for him. It's not said that he cried out, day shall come again every time he hewed off the hands of one of the orcs, but, um, but then finally he's borne down. Mary is a much smaller scale version of Hurin in the Fens of Serac, but it, it echoes, right? It echoes that earlier story. Here, it's backwards. Here now we find Errol the Young, the originator, right, of Rohan. You know, the, 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 now he's not that all, all that far back, right, especially when we're comparing to Fingen and Mithros and, uh, you know, Hurin and the Fens of Serac and all that kind of thing. But still, um, he is the great hero at the head of the roles, right, when it comes to Rohiric history, and yet... Aemir, Theoden and Aemir here now in the, the, the funeral for Theoden, you know, their ride. Um, exactly as you're saying, Kate, the foe at Pelennor was greater than the foe at Celebrant. Um, absolutely. Um, you can say, Kate, I agree, you could argue that the need of Gondor was possibly equivalent in that it was about to get trashed both times, so, you know, defeat equals defeat, but um, but still, no, this was this was bigger. The stakes, were, in a sense, the stakes were higher, though, because what would have happened had Gondor lost at the field of Celebrant, right? Well, you know, the kingdom of Gondor would have fallen, yeah, uh, and that would have had long-term consequences, but it's not like the shadow was moving forth at that point straight, you know, uh, uh, that this was just the first battle of the war that was going to consume the whole continent. You know, the, the war that was about to roll across the rest of the continent if it's not halted there in Gondor. Um, so I would say the stakes are actually larger. Again, in, in almost every dimension I can think of, Aeorl the Young's, the eucatastrophe of the ride of Aeorl the Young in, at the field of Celebrant is lesser than the ride of the Rohirrim to uh, Pelennor Field. And we see it again here, right? The Golden Hall achieves its greatest glory, not under Aeorl the Young, um, but, uh, of course, it was only built by his son. But bear with me, you know what I mean? Um, uh, here And where the relationship with Aeorl the Young was established with the stewards, now we get it with the king. Right? And for the first time, a king of the city of the south had come thither before. It wasn't because they had just always snubbed them in the past. It's because there had been no kings since the Rohirrim came. Um, but um, anyway, so um, I that's... I don't 
quite know what to make of this, but I found it kind of interesting. Uh, kind of interesting that um, um, now, Brian, I'm not arguing necessarily that the like the story of Rohan is meant to have exactly the same shape as the elves in the sense of fading and diminishing. Um, but the trajectory is definitely the same. Um, and you even hear some of that. Uh, no, a lot of that in the history of of the kings of Rohan, right? Errol the Young. Uh, and think of his relationship with his horse, right? Think of Errol the Young and Faleroff. Uh, you know, Faleroff, who could speak the tongues of men, right? Shadowfax's ancestor, who not only, uh, you know, was probably as fast as Shadowfax, or, or at least pretty close, but could talk, right? Could speak the tongues of men and, and talk to Errol the Young. Think of Helm Hammerhand, right? And how much larger than life Helm Hammerhand looms, right? They don't make them like that anymore, right? That, that's the story. It's not just the elf story. Um, I agree with you that there is a different quality, right? There's a different quality in the story of, like, we shall fade and diminish and pass into the West, and, um, you know, weird dwarves standing on the shoulders of giant giants. The, 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 the decline of human civilization over time, is a, there's a different flavor than there is in the diminishment of the elves. But there is definitely usually a diminishment. Uh, this is unusual. This is unusual. Um, and, but even Aragorn, right? Aragorn is, is the last king of the, you know, of the, of the elder days. He's still a lot shorter than Elendil, right? Um, he's not Elendil. He, 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 you know, there's, he achieves these really wonderful heights, right? But at the end of the day, Aragorn and Arwen are only an echo of Baron and Luthien. They're not Baron and Luthien, right? Aragorn is like Elendil coming up from the sea, but he's not Elendil, right? He is like Isildur uh, speaking to the dead at the Stone of Erech, but he, he's not Isildur, right? And I don't mean that as an insult to Isildur. He's lesser than Isildur, Um in stature. Um, anyway, so yeah, I agree. Uh, Tony and Matt, the, Oh yeah. The, uh, the, the, his, the shortness of his life. Yes, exactly. He, he is long lived. Uh, Aragorn is, but not as long lived as the Numenorians. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, yep. So we can see, uh, but again, Theoden, Amir, not so. Then this one example, we have a glory being achieved, uh, which actually makes Errol the Young in retrospect sound like an echo of Theoden rather than the other way around. Um, anyway, it's in a sense, of course, here I'm not really even just talking about this draft, these draft, this draft paragraph, but rather this draft paragraph kind of brought this to my attention, which I'd never really thought about. I think it's there in the in the published text too. Um, but um, yeah, yeah. Um, and yeah, uh, first fish, I agree. The importance there is, uh, the, the, the myth from before is real. Um, and the present is, is, is pointing back to that, which is greater. Um, that's why I use the term typology, right? Because it's one of the things it's, that's, that's the shape of that, right? You have two stories, both of which are true, right? Both of which happened. And yet they're linked in this way. One prefigures the other. Um, and, uh, uh, 
Yeah, yeah. So uh, that's that's exactly the dynamic there, which is which I think is really important. But um, anyway, um, okay. Let's see. Well, see, Tony, I'm not sure. I I I don't think it's a trend. Like I don't th- I don't think we can say that like Rohan and Gondor are trending in different directions. Like Rohan is trending up and Gondor is trending down. There's a sense in which that's true, but let's go back to Faramir's lecture, right? Um, if Faramir is to believed, they are trending in different directions, but they're not they're not they're not going like this. You know, they're, they're not crossing. They're they're going they're going like this, right? Rohan is rising and Gondor is falling, but they're they're not they're not they, they haven't they haven't crossed yet, right? They're not at the meeting point. And I don't think they're going to cross and continue in opposite directions. Uh it, it kind of looks like if they're going to do anything, they're going to join together and and merge in a sense. I don't know. Um but um uh anyway, um but in any case, I'm not 100% sure that I believe even that, actually. Um, this seems to me a, a moment, not a trend. Um, you know, one data point does not it does not indicate a trend. Um, and so that's really kind of one of the questions that I find myself asking here. Is Amir, is this moment, right? Is this moment, or, you know, this, this moment, the ride of the Rohirrim, extended moment, I guess, the ride of the Rohirrim, the funeral of Theoden, the celebration, the, the coronation of Aemir. Um, is this a, is this a, is this the beginning of a trend or is this a bad data point, right? Is this like a blip, uh, on the, on the measure, this one moment of greatness, um, which in fact transcends the greatness even of their fathers. Um, and then it declines thereafter. I don't think it's necessary. The fact that it happens, I think it does happen, but the fact that it happens doesn't necessarily, to me, prove that, and from here on, the sky's the limit for Rohan, right? No, I think it's going to decline, uh, perhaps suddenly. Um, uh, who knows? But, uh, um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, they could. Or I was going to say they approach each other asymptotically, Matt, but I, I, I decided to avoid that. Uh, besides which, I'm not sure. I mean, the merging of the two peoples um, uh, is certainly one of the things that we see, right, with Eowyn and Faramir and even with Imrahil's daughter uh, and uh, uh, and Eomir. Um Now, Tony, I agree with you. Aemir wedding Imrahil's daughter is kind of marrying up and does sort of suggest that it certainly does suggest that that blending. But again, I don't think it suggests that they're going to keep getting better and better and better, certainly to the point where they're going to, you know, surpass the um, uh, the people of Gondor necessarily. So anyway, as I say, I'm just not I'm not 100 percent. I'm not really convinced that that it sort of works exactly that way. Um, Anyway. Okay, so uh, that's also interesting. Brian points out this could be hyperbole from Frodo or Sam, who weren't who weren't there for for uh, the Young anyway. Definitely possible, definitely possible, but it seems to be borne out by the fact that. Um, uh, by what we can see 
in the facts of the case, right? Again, like the way when you compare the the battle on the field of Kelebrant and the catastrophic arrival of Errol the Young, with the battle of Pelennor Field and the uh, the catastrophic arrival of Theoden and the Rohirrim, I, I think that um, I think our Hobbit narrators might be onto something there. Um, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Good. It is possible that Errol the Young and Helm Hammerhand have been hyperbolized over time, Yana. Um, but what reason do we have to believe that? All the evidence in Tolkien's world indicates that the great ones who came before were, in fact, great. The only example I can think of, the only example I can think of where we see like a false legend growing up around something is Mad Baggins. But even that, doesn't make Bilbo out to be greater than he really was, rather lesser, right? It's a because the hobbits only ever know a tiny sliver of the story of what really happened, what was really behind Bilbo's dramatic disappearance at his birthday party. This story of Mad Baggins grows up, which um, doesn't so much as form an explanation as... Um, uh, as turn the non-explanation into um, uh, turn the non-explanation into story, right? He has to be Mad Baggins because it, it, what he does doesn't make any sense, right? Um, but um, but anyway, yeah, I, I'm I'm trying to think of any examples. I can't think of any. Um, yeah, can't think of any. Um, that just really doesn't seem to be how it works in Tolkien's world. I'm I'm not saying that there wouldn't be any example of, you know, a legend growing up. I'm not saying that Tolkien was against that, you know, whole theoretical concept. I'm just saying I don't see any really reason to, uh, um, yeah, we'll see. But Yana, I would, you know, uh, Yana says uh, he's not saying that it explains it entirely, but any heroic figures will be embellished somewhat. Really, it's the word "really," Yana, though that's tricky, right? When you say "really," what you're doing is importing your own belief about our primary world and asserting it that that's how things must work also in Middle-earth. But I'm not sure that I can see any evidence for that. Um, either that Tolkien would have necessarily agreed with you about how our world really works, or that that's the way that this world really works. Um, yeah, we do get the invention of golf, Kate. But even that... It's not exactly a, a that's that doesn't take anything away from Bullroarer, right? Or necessarily indicate that Bullroarer was not true, 
right? Um, <laughs> Matthew Wicker points out it's a bit different when you have elves around who remember the guy. <laughs> yeah, it's true. It's true. Um, we know that Aerol the Young um, did, in fact, ride you catastrophically uh, to the uh, to the aid of uh, uh, of Kyrian the Steward because Galadriel remembers it, right, and can 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 vouch for the fact that it happened. Um, but anyway, yeah, yeah, uh, it's it is a really interesting uh, fact, actually. Um, I say fact. The fact that I can't remember something is the fact that doesn't prove that it doesn't exist. Uh, that would be an interesting thing to study, actually. Legends and reality in Tolkien. When stories... The fate of stories about things... Of course, thinking about Sam and Frodo and the stairs of Carathungal are one of the... Um, um, are one of the the um, places where we can see this, I think, most clearly. But again, there, even there, um, Sam talks about a gap between what the people in the stories would really have understood was going on and what they would have thought about it. But it's nowhere in that conversation do any of them suggest. Like, well, I bet, you know, the great characters in the old stories probably actually weren't all that great. You know, we're probably exaggerating about that kind of thing. Um, so anyhow, uh, but yeah, uh, Matt, I do think that's an important, um, um, uh, I do think that that's an important uh, thing. But see, uh, Yana, that's an interesting example. Yana raises the question, what about Turin, the elf friend, Dragon Slayer? Um no, I don't think that is an example, actually, at all. First of all, again, remember, uh, there's, like, folks standing around who probably knew Turin. Um, Glorfindel never met him, but he was around, um, and certainly knew... Like, we know for a fact that, like, some of the... There, there have to be survivors of the, the uh, you know, like, who knew Eärendil, um who, like, knew people from Nargothrond, right? The refugees of Nargothrond and the refugees of Gondolin live there together under Eärendil and Elwing, right? There have to be at least a couple of those people still in a, in Rivendell. I, I can't see how that could not be, right? They didn't all die. A bunch of them died, but not all of them. And Elrond stays, and I'm sure that a couple of them uh, 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 stays there. And yet Kate says, Kyrdin knows everybody. Um, exactly. So, um even if they haven't stayed around, Elrond was also there, right? I mean, he would have known people who knew Turin single, you know, firsthand. Uh, so he would he 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 himself, Elrond himself, who says that about Turin, knew Turin secondhand, right? Didn't n never met him personally, right? But certainly would have known people who did know him, right? And what's more probably did not just tell the rose-tinted version of the Turin story. These are refugees from Nargothrond we're talking about, right? Anyway, um, no, that's that passage I was super excited about when we got to it. Was it in the Return of the Shadow class? I can't remember. But, um, but no, the parallel there, um, they were elf friends, of course. Turin was an elf friend, whether or not he, he, he like did awesome things or not is not necessarily the point. Um, 
but the thing I can't remember which which class I was teaching when I when I this suddenly occurred to me, but I was super excited about it when it did because uh, uh, Yana, I also had always been um, really confused about that passage. Um, why Turin? Why Turin gets listed as among the great elf friends of old? But of course, there is one thing that all three of the elf friends in question have in common: Baron, Hurin, and Turin. And the thing that they all three of them have in common is that they defy Morgoth to his face. Um, now, Turin never met Morgoth, you say? Yeah, but you know what's going to happen at the Dagard Daggeroth? I think Elrond does. Um, so, yeah, no, it's like they, they, they are the... Th- Turin is the one who's going to kill Morgoth with his black sword at the end of days. Uh, Hurin is the one who defied Morgoth to his face, and Baron, of course, is the one who cuts the Silmaril from his crown. That's the company that Frodo's being put in, right? If you raise your hand to take the ring and be the ring bearer to take it to Mount Doom, to abjure the ring, but to bear it and destroy it and liberate the way, then you will be in this company, not just coolest people of all time, not just those who accomplished much, but those who set their hands to the, to oppose the enemy directly face to face and in his stronghold. And there's a short list of elf friends who have done that. Baron Hurin and Turin. Um, anyway, but I'm in full-fledged digression now. Um, but um, anyway, okay. Uh, yeah, okay. Let me just move on. Let's keep going. In the end, I think the cutting this scene was a good idea but I kind of love it anyway. Okay. And when the burial was over and the last song was ended, there was a great feast in the hall. And when they came to the time when all should drink to the memories of mighty men, forth came Eowyn, lady of Rohan, golden as the sun and white as snow. And she brought forth the cup to Eomir, king of the mark, and he drank to the memory of Theoden. And then a minstrel sang, naming all the kings of the mark in order, and last king Eomir. And Aragorn arose, and wished him hail, and drank to him. And then Gandalf arose, and bid all men rise, and they rose, and he said, Here is a last hail, ere the feast endeth, last but not least. For I name now one, change to, those who shall not be forgotten. Better change it to those, right? This has got to be plural. We're not just remembering Frodo. Those who shall not be forgotten, and without whose valor naught else that was done would have availed. And I name before you all Frodo of the Shire and Samwise his servant, and the bards and the minstrels should give them new names. Bronwe Athan Harthad and Harthad Uluithiad. Uluithiad. Endurance beyond hope, and hope unquenchable. And to those names men drank in honor, but Sam went very red, and murmured to Frodo, I don't know what my dad would think of the change. He wasn't always against outlandish names. The gentry can do as they please, he said, with their roariuses and raunchuses, but for plain folk something shorter wears better. But even if I could say the name, I'd think it don't suit. My hope Something low, Mr. Frodo, something, something, something. Um, oh, man. Um, I am so sad. This is, I think, 
the very top of my list of illegible sentences that Tolkien wrote in drafts that I wish we knew what it said, right? That even Christopher can't figure out. Um, I agree, Stephen. I, I too will always mourn the loss of that sentence. Uh, oh my goodness. Um, but this is really cool. I love the impulse, right? I love the impulse to say, because of course it makes perfect sense. Um, what do the Rohirrim know about Frodo and Sam? Right? I mean, some of them would have been there. There presumably would have been some witnesses there at at, at you know at Aragorn's uh, uh, crowning, right? Um, but um, uh, you know, I um, um, yeah, I I, I don't think that uh, it, it, to me it makes perfect sense that Gandalf would want to say like, okay the people of Rohan, like we need to work this into the Rohiric culture here too. Right. Everybody here in Rohan needs to understand what really happened. Um, because you guys are going to be clear on the battle part, right? You guys participated in the battle of Pelennor field and you guys were, you know, a bunch of you were there at the, at the, the, the destruction of the black gate. Uh, and therefore, of course, many also there at the, uh, at the, the field of Cormallon. But let's make sure everybody everybody knows. Like here we are in Rohan, everybody's gathered around. Um, let's do some more praising with great praise for Sam and Frodo. Um, yeah. Um, uh, okay. So, oh, Kate, I love that. Kate's here's uh, Kate has a theory for what Sam's last sentence was. My hope, something, something low, Mr. Frodo, something, something, something. Uh, Kate's theory is, my hope sank pretty low, Mr. Frodo, there at the end. That's her That's her theory. That's a good theory, Kate. That works pretty well. I can totally imagine Sam saying that. My hope, my hope sank pretty low, Mr. Frodo, there at the end. Um, yeah. Hope unquenchable. You got to think if when Sam is named Hope unquenchable, that he's going to remember, right? That that uh, uh, that th- that is how he would remember it, right? Um, that he gave up. I mean, remember like him throwing his pans and things away, right? When that that moment when he realizes we're not coming back, right? We're we're I'm I'm casting aside everything else because this is a one way trip, right? I could see him looking back at that and saying like, yeah, I, I gave up hope. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, let's see, Bruce, I'm not a hundred percent sure if this is contemporary with Sam's first poem in the tower of Kirith but certainly if he's remembering that poem, right. Yeah. Uh, his hope got a little quenched there, uh, in the first draft, uh, of that poem. No question. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I agree, Tony. It would be Estelle unquenchable, not Amdir unquenchable. But I got, but I could see, I could see Sam quibbling on this basis. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. Now, uh, don't, don't get me wrong. Not actually trying to diss Sam, of course, just saying, I agree with, uh, I agree with Kate that I could see him saying that, uh, that I could see him looking back on what happened in Mordor and uh, he would not, I, I can't imagine Sam looking back and being like, you know, they really nailed it, right? My hope really was unquenchable and it's a good thing too, or else none of this would have worked out, right? It's really all down to me. Like Sam wouldn't talk like that, right? He would look back and he would, he would uh, remember 
times when he did not feel very hopeful at all, right? Where he had given up hope. Um, I do think that that's how he would, uh, we, that's how he would think of it. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, okay. Um, of course we do get the gaffer's wisdom lingering into the naming of, uh, uh, of, uh, uh, Eleanor, right. Uh, keep it short. Then you won't have to cut it short afterwards. We can hear them. You know, he does end up cutting this out, but he, he, he does pull that sentence out of his, uh, out of his, his, his clipping drawer and, and, and rework it into the story later on. Um, yeah, Steve and I agree. Sam wouldn't be half so awesome if he were actually aware of how awesome he is. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, I just like, uh, um, I just like the, the whole, um, the, the, the names themselves, right? Endurance beyond hope and hope unquenchable, right? The, 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 you know, Gandalf says essentially here, right? Like the, the heart of Sam's accomplishment is that he is the one who never lost hope. He is the one who's Estelle carried both of them literally carried Frodo through, right? If it hadn't been for Sam and his, the unquenchability of his hope of his Estelle, the whole thing would have been for nothing. And Frodo who was, did not have unquenchable hope like Sam, but who endured beyond hope when he was in complete despair, when he had almost completely lost himself, yet he still endured up to and beyond the, 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 the ability of, you know, mortal strength to endure, he endured, right? He endured as long as anyone could possibly have endured. Um, and I think that's, uh, I think that's pretty cool. Kate asks if, uh, Tolkien had given young Aragorn the name Estelle yet. Don't think so. No, I can't. He can't, he can't have, uh, the story of Aragorn and Arwen, uh, in the appendices, Clearly comes later, right? Uh, um, I mean, he's only just invented Arwen, and he's not even named her yet uh, properly. Um, yeah. Anyway. So again, I at the end of the day, I think you know this. Uh, uh, I can't disagree with Tolkien's ultimate choice to cut this, but um, I, I still I thought uh, I I really I really liked it. Um, Okay. Um, yeah, good. Let's see. Um, do we know when the word or concept of Estelle was invented? Well, Matthew, I'm tempted to say it wasn't. Um, is that something... Can we see that coming up for discussion, right? Is that a thing, a clear thing in like the 1937 Silmarillion? I don't think so. I can't think of any place where that comes in like that. I'm not saying we can't look back and find in retrospect examples of Estelle and that kind of thing, but um, where the distinction between the different kinds of hope came out, I don't think so. Um it seems to me most likely, Matthew, that um, 
it seems to me most likely that it's Sam, right? That Sam and Frodo, the experience of going through Mordor with Sam and Frodo is the thing that is the moment where uh, Tolkien really discovered the significance, right? Uh, you know, hope is such a major theme uh, of the Two Towers and the Return of the King, like of the Sam and Frodo um, plot thread, right, of their story. Um, and I, I really think it's through them. Of course, he will theorize about it later on. Um, it will become a, a discussion point, right, in Morgoth's ring. Um, but, you know, we're not there yet. Um, that's in the aftermath of this. Um, and I think, I, you know, there are several times, I think, where we can see Tolkien himself coming to a sort of a philosophical or spiritual understanding during the course of writing The Lord of the Rings. Um, and this, that seems to me one of them. That's what I would guess anyway. I can't think of any evidence that contradicts that. Um, exactly, Matthew. And then being Tolkien, he had to find a word to match. Yes. So, um, or I would, I would add one other step, Matthew. Being Tolkien, he then figured that the elves would have seen it, right? Uh, once he sort of realizes how these two different forms of hope work, like, well, obviously the elves in their wisdom would have perceived that and would have given it two different names, right? So, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and you're right, of course, Kate. Gil Estelle is a name for uh, uh, for Arendel. I can't remember when it starts getting called Gil Estelle, but still the fact, even if the word Estelle meant hope, that doesn't necessarily convince me that there's, that he, when he introduced the, even if the, the word Estelle were attached to, um, uh, you know, Wingalot and, uh, and Arendel prior to the Lord of the Rings, that would still not necessarily in itself convince me that he had necessarily worked out both of those concepts, right? Um, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's hope, and then there's hope, and he had he, he had necessary. Again, I don't I don't see that necessarily. I don't I don't see the Amdir versus Estelle dichotomy being worked out in the Arendel story exactly. Hope is involved, obviously, but um, yeah, yeah. Um, and then, of course, Kate, it is kind of beautiful, right, that the star of Arendel, Gil Estelle, is like at the heart of one of those scenes where Sam is working it out, right? Um, okay, cool. All right, let's, uh, let's keep going. Isengard, Treebeard. And Gandalf praised his work. And at last he said farewell with many long words, saying that he had added some new lines. And when Merry and Pippin at last said farewell, he something them and said, Well, my merry folk, take a draft before you go. And they said, Yes, indeed. And he looked at them over the bowl and he said, Take care, for you have already grown since I saw you. And they laughed. And then he went sad, and he said, and don't forget that if you ever hear news of the Antwives, you must send word to us. And Aragorn said, the East Lands now lie open, but Treebeard shook his head and said that it was far away. But Legolas and Gimli here said goodbye and went into Fangorn, and from there they proposed to journey together to their own countries. Alas, that our lands lie so far apart, but we will send word to Rivendell. And Elrond looked at them and said, send rather to the Shire. Okay. Um, 
this uh this is hasty right um very hasty and uh this all sounds confusing right in fact what this sounds like is a plot outline right um this is not a this is not the story this is like a you know that this is the this is the pledge to write the story right this is the outline as he's going through um it's pretty clear that he said farewell with many long words, saying that he had added some new lines. That's Treebeard, right? Gotta be. Gandalf praises Treebeard's work, and at the last, Treebeard said farewell with the, with the long words, right? Uh, saying that Treebeard had added some new lines to the old lists, right? Okay, yeah. So that all that all mostly makes sense. There are a couple things that are striking about this. First, let us just briefly notice there's like no reference to. Um, Saruman in their whole discussion in this very first draft, right? Um, is it because he wasn't planning on it? Now, we knew in the earlier projections he had gotten into the conversation between Gandalf and, and Saruman, right? Um, which was a little bit comical back in that older part. Um, uh, but... Um, Uh, anyway, Saruman's being absent doesn't mean that Saruman was never going to be added. This, not just this passage, this whole section seemed weird to me. When have we seen Tolkien do this before? Because I'm not convinced that we have seen Tolkien do this before. Um, I mean, he might have done. But it's not his normal pattern. Now, writing a plot outline and then filling it out is his normal pattern. But when he starts writing... He tends to expand. Like, remember, we've seen things that started as plot outline, and then pretty soon we have a, a full, like, full dialogue going on, right? Um, where he he's like, it's like, yeah, he starts with the di- with the with the with the outline. Then he starts like hearing the voices and what they're saying, and he and he starts writing it down, and then he gets kind of carried away. That we've seen a lot. Um, again, we've seen the outlines and then he goes and writes the story. But when he goes and writes the story after the outline, this isn't outline. I mean, it sounds like outline, but it's not outline. We've seen the plot outline, right? We had that several slides ago. That's the plot outline, right? Um, and very like the kinds of plot outlines he's done before as well. Um, this isn't plot outline. This is prose narrative. And he, ma- he maintains this level, which sounds like summary. Which sounds like, again, only just like a pledge to write the narrative, not the real narrative. And of course, uh, it's not just the Saruman thing that's missing. As you go through this, and remember, Christopher gives us a a very large chunk of this draft, of this text uh, in the book. And there are all sorts of things missing all over the place, right? Um, We get this, you know, most of the things that he describes happening uh, stay in the published text. But there's a large number of things, like the Saruman conversation between Gandalf and Treebeard, uh, for the current example here, which just don't get alluded to at all 
in the in that version, uh, you know, in this version of the of the narrative of the draft. Um, and I can't remember a time when Tolkien has maintained that when he has maintained this kind of a summary version that went that long without like getting into it and writing a full prose account. Right. Besides which, when he does write a full prose account, it often he seems to have to cut down rather than add to, at least not add to like this. Again, this this kind of really rapid, sketchy summary, which then he fleshes out. I'm trying to think of times when he's done that. That's not usually, when it's going well, it comes out fully formed, like the Treebeard chapter, like the Mount Doom chapter. Um, when it's not going well, it comes out and then he's got to go back and redo it and redo it and redo it, like the Parth Galen chapter, right? Um, and sometimes he discovers things that come again and again, you know, that, that like, you know, discovering more and more things, like what happened in Lothlorien or what happened in Rohan. Um, but still, those tend to happen, you know, he'll do the plot outline and then prose and the plot outline and then prose, not, you know, sketchy prose, sketchy prose, sketchy prose, and then I'll go back and flesh it out. It just seemed a very, a very different kind of technique. Um, and, uh, um, I was struck by, I was very struck by that. I was very struck by the fact that his technique seems to be changing, um, here. Why would that be? I'm tempted to say, well, maybe it's because he sees the end of the road, right? So he's hastening towards the end of the road. He wants to sketch it all out, right? Um, but, um, okay, so he does that. Um, but again, we've never seen him do that. If he sees the path clearly before him, he writes it. You know, again, like the Treebeard chapter, like the, uh, the, the you know, the Mordor chapters that we were looking at and we were talking about last time. Um if he doesn't see it clearly, then, you know, outline bit, outline bit is the, is the, the, the clearer path. Um, James Leback says this, is, this is, is almost like some of the summaries in the Silmarillion material, like that kind of register. Um, yeah, except it's more sketchy, right? Uh, the Silmarillion does like plot summary-ish stuff, right? Um, but it's, um, um, yeah, so it's more it's it's more plot summary ish, uh, but it doesn't include like this is clearly the fragments which are clearly fragmentary, right? The fragments of dialogue that we get interspersed in here, we don't get stuff like that um, in the Silmarillion exactly. I'm not quite sure what to do with it, but I, I find it sort of fascinating that he was doing this and. Here's one of the other things. The result is also kind of weird if you think about it, right? That is, those chapters, the many partings chapter, for instance, the narrative flow and the, the final narrative flow in the published text is quite different. Think about how fragmented it is, right? You know, we get the encounter with, you know, the the funeral of Theoden, then a little reference to the, you know, to the departure, the, the, the leave taking between Elrond and Arwen, right? 
and then we go on to um, uh, Treebeard, right? And we talk to Treebeard for a little bit. And then next we jump ahead to, and then they traveled for a bit. And then we get to Saruman. And then they traveled for a bit more. And then we get to the departure of Galadriel. And then they traveled for a bit and they got to Rivendell, right? Um, that's a that's sort of a level of narrative. Um, yeah, let me sum up Boomful is very much what it ends up kind of sounding like, right? And it's it's interesting. I mean, it, that this seems to be both a different product and therefore unsurprisingly uh, a different process, rather, and unsurprisingly uh, uh, resulted in a different product, narratively speaking, uh, than we get in other places um, in uh, uh, in the in the Lord of the Rings. Um, I said, I'm not really sure what to do with it, but, um, but I was certainly interested to see, uh, this. And, and, and if there are other places that where this happened that I'm not remembering, remind me. Um, but I really couldn't remember a place where we got this kind of sketchy narrative that he then goes back keeping everything, but just adding in bits that he had left out, um, fleshing out as he went along. That's not like, it's either, it's either outline or it's flesh, right? Uh, you know, like the flesh comes fully formed. It's not, uh, that's, I get, you know, and then, and then often gets, has to be trimmed back, right? It's too fleshy. Uh, so it has to be trimmed back. That's the normal pattern of his prose composition that we've seen. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, Kate says uh, it has something of the episodic nature of the Hobbit. Uh, Tolkien here seems to be like Legolas with his mind on the sea. Yeah, that's a really that's a really good simile, Kate. I like that a lot. All right. Um. Okay. Uh, so here we're with uh, we're with Bilbo. The chapter ends in this earliest form with very rough sketching of the time that the Hobbit spent with Bilbo, but most of the essentials of the final form are present. The chief difference lies in Bilbo's gifts. Then Bilbo gave Frodo his coat and sword, and he gave Sam a lot of books of lore, and he gave Merry and Pippin a lot of good advice. Bilbo's verse, The Road Goes Ever On and On, is lacking, but, there, but that there should be a verse at this point is indicated on the manuscript. Gandalf's intimation that he would go with the hobbits at least as far as Bree is lacking, and at the departure from Rivendell, Elrond's words of farewell to Frodo, though the same as in The Return of the King, suggesting that about this time of the year he should look for Bilbo in the woods of the Shire, were heard also by the others, and they did not fully understand what he meant, and Gandalf, of course, would not explain. Um... I agree, Nancy. Merry and Pippin, and especially Pippin, certainly do need good advice. Um... I love Sam's gift of books of lore. Uh, this um, this is a delightfully unexpected gift to Sam, right? Um, I mean, we know that he, uh, you know, has these hidden depths, and we know that he was, uh, you know, at the in the end, Sam is clearly Bilbo's best student, right? Um, so it's not like it's shocking and comes from absolutely nowhere, but I just love. Uh, this thing, I like the, you know, the the very last of the Smaug vintage and the, you know, the the foreshadowing of Sam's um, of Sam's wedding. Right. That's all adorable. And I really like that in the published text. But I'm not sure I don't like the books of lore better, actually. Um, so, um, yeah, I, I really do. I really do like that. exactly the gift of books from the one who taught Sam his letters. It, there's so much. Uh, uh, it's such a beautiful thing, right? Thinking about the impact that Bilbo had on Sam 
as his teacher, right? Uh, and what a uh, what an enthusiastic student Sam was, even though he doesn't consider himself an intellectual and he does not, uh, you know, think of himself as learned. Um, to see Bilbo clearly sort of singling out Sam, right? You are my you are my heir, right? You are the one who is going to, uh, you know, not, 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 not his heir of his possessions, right? But his, uh, his literary heir, right? You're, you're the one who's going to take up where I left off, just as I taught you your letters. And I, uh, recited to you my pedagogical poetry about, uh, Gilgalad and all these other things. You're going to teach the future generations, right? You are the, you are the one to whom I am entrusting, um, these books of lore because you will be handing them down to future generations. Like I handed them down to you. It's, it's, it's awesome. It's, 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 it's lovely. I absolutely, um, I absolutely love it. So yeah, yeah, that I, I do, I do, I do regret the books of lore. I wish the books of lore had stayed honestly. Um, could have given him a little gold too. Uh, or at least, you know, teased him about getting married or something still could have gotten some reference to it, but, Anyway, um, notice, though, again, one of the things that we can see in this passage, that same tone is continuing all the way through, right? We're st- he's still writing in his first draft um, in this same summary mode, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, Stephen, there is a little bit of a Jedi Padawan thing going on there with uh, with uh, 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 Sam and Bilbo, right? Um, it's different than the relationship between Bilbo and Frodo, right? Um, which is much closer in some ways, but yeah. Anyway, cool. Um, Elrond's mentioning the uh, looking for Bilbo in the woods of the Shire in the hearing of everyone. Um, see, there again, I'm thinking about the change. So we know that Tolkien is going to revise this so that he says it only to Frodo, right? Um, and the the significance that that gives it, um, the way in which this is really something, it, that Elrond singles Frodo out among his companions, right? This is a message just for you. This is particularly relevant to you. Um, does a really good job of setting up the significance of the end, right? Of 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 Frodo's departure. Um, uh, I I I love the way that that sort of anticipates it in ways that he doesn't uh, exactly. Tolkien doesn't actually uh, do or foresee here in these earlier drafts. Uh, just as he doesn't really know what he where he's getting rid of Gandalf yet either, right? Uh, Gandalf is still hanging about. He's the only one who hasn't left them yet. Um, but it seems pretty clear he still he doesn't yet know what to do with Gandalf and only decides at the last second not to bring him into the Shire. Right. Um. <laughs> Poor Gellborn. Um A long rider takes up at the words. And by the way, I must have read that sentence four times. <laughs> Before I re- remembered that Christopher Tolkien, Tolkien was talking about a rider, like an addition to the text, uh, 
because <laughs> um, it's in the it's in it's in the context of Rohan, right? And immediately followed by the sentence, "Then they rode towards the gap of Rohan." I'm like, I'm seriously like, I was staring at that sentence. Like, in what sense was this rider long? Long is a weird adjective to use to describe a rider. And then I'm like, oh, oh, passage of text that gets added on. Okay, right, all right, tracking with you, Christopher. Thanks for that. Um, anyhow, a long rider takes up at the words. They Then they rode toward the Gap of Rohan, and the departure of Aragorn is told in almost the same words as in The Return of the King. But Galadriel said to him, Elfstone, through darkness you have come to your desire. Use well the days of light. And Celeborn said, Kinsman, farewell, but your doom is like to mine, for our treasure shall outlast us both. Okay, um... The advice of the last words of Galadriel and Celeborn to Aragorn are uh, neither one of them quite the same, right, as in the final text. Um, Galadriel's difference is only the last words, right? Use well the days, she says. Um, uh, Use well the days of light is kind of interesting, right, because it sort of suggests darkness is coming. Um, uh, And does it, is that character i mean is she thinking of the you know the time of the dominion is of men is the days of darkness you know what what are the days of light when are the days of light going to be done are they going to run out part of the way through aragorn's reign like what what separates the light from the darkness here in uh in in goadriel's imagination um i'm not really sure what was in tolkien's mind here what was in goadriel's mind here when she when she says this um uh Oh, Kate, that's interesting. Okay, Kate's thinking about it quite differently. Um, uh, Kate is thinking, she reads this as men belonging to the sun rather than the stars. So rather than thinking the light is ending, right? uh, I was associating that, of course, Galadriel fading, diminishing, right? Uh, That she was connecting the light with her, not herself personally necessarily but with the elves in the elder days that are passing uh and so therefore there's an urgency because it's not going to last forever but if you think about it that way that the coming days are the days of light right the days of the gloaming um and the twilight uh of the elder world is passing and the days of the of the sun have come um that she's just saying from now on it's the days of light and use them all well um Yeah, um, I can buy that. It doesn't sound like how Galadriel would think of it is my problem. But, I mean, I can just buy it. I certainly don't know, again, I don't know when, like, the days of light expire if we think about it the other direction, but I'm not sure. Anyway, but Celeborn's final words are the real poser here, right? Farewell, but... First of all, Caliborn, for real? You're going to go with but? Farewell, but? You know, uh, you know. I wish you well, but... You know, I mean, like, seriously, that's where you're going to end things? But, okay. Farewell, but your doom is like to mine. For our treasure shall outlast us both. What the heck does Caliborn mean by that? Our treasure shall outlast us both? Bruce is saying, is 
he going to die before Galadriel dies? Um, <laughs> Nancy says, this is why Caliborn doesn't talk much. Now, like every time Caliborn talks, he puts his foot in his mouth. Um, our treasure shall last us both. The butt makes it sound like that's bad. Right? I mean, you could, depending on what Aragorn's treasure is, right? If his treasure is his kingship in general, right? Then that outlasting him is good, right? Uh, is it going to outlast him in a similar way in which, like, is Caliborn's treasure the same and outlasting him in the same way? Really? Okay, maybe it is. Um, but, it, but, that, but, but if that's it, I mean, if, he's, if, if, if what he's saying is, hey, don't worry, I have a foreknowledge that your legacy is going to be wonderful and you're going to do a great job and things are going to turn out well for your kingdom, Aragorn, keep it up, right? Um, if that's his final message, why does he introduce it with but? Farewell, but. I can't, I, t- I don't think that's what he means. Um <laughs> Matt Cannon says, I bet Galadriel's rolling her eyes at her husband at this point. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I mean, it does depend what their treasure is. It really does. Um, if, well, what are candidates? It's just, let's focus on Caliborn for a second, right? When he says our treasure, what is Caliborn's treasure? I mean, there's a limited number of candidates for that position, right? I mean, uh, it, it's... it's um, Goadriel? His treasure's got to be either his wife or his land. Right? I mean, what else does he have? <laughs> he doesn't have any other treasure. <laughs> what does poor Caliborn have? Right? Uh, poor Caliborn doesn't have anything but an awesome wife and a kingdom. Right. So it's got to be one of those two things. Um, And his granddaughter, that would be kind of meta, Bruce. Right. You know, our treasure shall outlast us both like Arwen is going to outlive the two of us. Um, (laughs) I don't know. But um, anyway, um, uh, if it's Goadriel, then he's saying Goadriel is going to outlast him. Um, that doesn't make any sense to me. Um, if he's talking about his land, his realm, is it true? Is his treasure going to outlast him? I mean, I guess we could imagine that. Well, do we have any reason to believe that at this point, Tolkien is imagining Lorien, like continuing on into, you know, future ages after Celeborn is gone? I can't see a single scrap of evidence to suggest that. Everything that we get about Lothlorien is that its time is passing. Um, so I, I can't imagine that. Um, uh, I don't know. I have no. This is the thing. It's not just that I. It's it's not just that it seems like Caliborn's putting his foot in it here. It's that I literally don't understand what he means. 
Like, what could he be talking about? And to call it his doom. I mean, doom's a good word. It's an important word, and we've seen that in many different occasions. But it's not like doom is always bad, of course, as we know. But but the but and the doom together, it's not a good look. Farewell, but your doom is like to mine. Uh, yeah. Tony says maybe Tolkien didn't know. He just he just thought this is what Kelborn said and decided he would work it out later. Tony, I can absolutely buy that. I can totally buy that uh, Tolkien might have been saying, yeah, I have no idea what Kelborn's getting at there. Um, of course, in the published text, as I recall, and y'all can correct me if I'm remembering wrongly, but Kelborn says almost the opposite, right? Kelborn is going to say, um, may your doom be unlike mine, right? He's going he's gonna to say, I'm, I'm wishing well upon you that you not end up like me. Um, which is already still kind of still a little bit depressing, but um, but not such a downer as this. Um, yeah, I don't know. Um, yes, and your treasure remain with you until the end, right? Yes, exactly. Um, Caliborn's treasure is not going to remain remain with him until the end, but may Aragorn's do so, right? And it's, James, it's primarily my memory of what he's going to end up saying in the published text that leads me to really doubt that Celeborn was thinking of his kingdom here. Um, and that he's almost certainly thinking of his wife when he talks about his treasure. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> but anyway, so I, I don't know. I'm very open to suggestions here. Uh, and Tony, I think that your theory is uh, uh, is my favorite so far, that Tolkien had no idea either. Um, yeah. Um, anyway, yeah. In the, in the published text, there's no business about outlasting. Nobody outlasts anybody else. It's about remaining with you. Um, it's about remaining with you. I don't know. I give it up. Okay. Um, <laughs> I love this passage. Okay. To Saruman's remark, I am seeking a way out of his realm. Gandalf at first replies, Then you are going the wrong way, bracketed, as seems to be your doom, unless you... I love that smack. <laughs> oh, the burn, Gandalf, as seems to be your due, as you are wont to do, Saruman, unless you wish to pass into the utter north and there freeze to death. <laughs> That's a great sentence. For from the sea in the west to Anduin, and thence many days march east is the realm of the king, and east ere long it will spread beyond the water of Runeiluin. Without striking this out, my father replaced it by... Then you have far to go, said Gandalf, and should be going eastward. Even so, you would have to travel far and find the border of his realm ever marching up behind you. This was struck through, and the final text here is, Then you have far to go, said Gandalf, and I see no hope in your journey. Um, uh, <laughs> Nancy says that, that uh, uh, you know, then you are going the wrong way, as seems to be your doom, unless you wish to pass into the utter north and there freeze to death. Yeah, Nancy calls that 100% vintage Gandalf. Yeah, I agree. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> anyway, 
I, one of the things that I love most here about this is not just sort of cranky Gandalf and, uh, and, and the, 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 the whole idea of like, well, if you're trying to get out of his realm, but you better keep going north, right? Just, just don't stop. Go north until you know how far north you're going to have to go. And then he's like, oh, shoot. Okay. Really? He can't go far enough north. Okay. Do you know how east, east is your best shot? Head east, but you're going to have to keep running because the realm is going gonna, to, you're going to be running away and the border is going to be coming up behind you. Right? And then he's like, nah, that doesn't work either. Uh, okay. So forget it. Um, just give up. Sorry, man. Just give up. You can't escape his realm. Um, it's almost like Aragorn's realm is growing as as Gandalf tries to find its borders, right? Like Gandalf's attempt to feel out the borders of the realm here. Um, it's almost like this is the play. This is the moment when uh, when Tolkien himself is really kind of wrapping his brain around the full geographic extent of Ar- of Aragorn's kingdom. Uh, and I, I just I just love that about this. Uh, about this passage, Jennifer. Exactly, it's like chasing the rainbow. Uh, exactly. Um, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Good. Um, yeah. Okay. No, that, that's the main thing I wanted to I wanted to say about that. Um, yeah. Okay. Uh, we're coming up on the end here. Let me. Uh, oop, hang on. Yeah, let me do one more here. Um, this was so cool. The um, the pipe weed exchange with Mary. Mine, mine, yes, and dearly paid for, said Saruman, clutching at the pouch. And then suddenly he seemed touched. Well, I thank you, he said. You do not crow, and your kind looks maybe are not feigned. You seem an honest fellow. And maybe you did not come to crow over me. So he, he's rewriting it, right? You seem an honest fellow. I hate to kill you. No, sorry. Uh, you seem an honest fellow. And maybe you did not come to crow, to crow over me. I'll tell you something. When you come to the Shire, beware of Cosimo and make haste, or you may go short of leaf. Thank you, said Mary. And if you get tired of wandering in the wild, come to the Shire. Oh, man. Mary inviting... Saruman to the Shire. Um, yes, yeah, Stephen, exactly. This Saruman I could see getting pardoned too, right? This is clearly the pardoned... We're still on the pardoned Saruman route, right? I love Christopher's theory that... Because remember, we have zero evidence of Sharky before this time. We know he's involved in the Shire, right? Um, and so here, when he's saying, beware of Cosimo, he's kind of giving away his own game, right? But the decision of Saruman to head to the Shire and attempt to destroy it as best he can out of bitterness and revenge um, is, and pettiness, really, um, is, has, never been, has not been conceived, right? Tolkien's impulse with Saruman is to redeem him first. But I love Christopher's theory that Mary's kind-hearted invitation, right? That really touching moment from Mary. If you get tired of wandering in the wild, come to the Shire. Here he's a, a beggar in the wilderness, right? And Mary looks at him in pity and invites him to come and live in the Shire, the Shire which he has been interfering with from a distance, right? The kind of grace that's uh, contained in that offer. 
is just beautiful. And I think it's really lovely. Um, and, um, uh, and then to have that, um, becoming, um, to have that becoming, um, uh, that kind of, you know, his invitation come back to bite him in a sense, right? Um, Christopher's inclination to say that the idea of Saruman coming to the Shire first occurs here, and that after Mary invites him, Tolkien, the idea that Saruman might someday come and live in the Shire um, begins to grow, but as it grows, it goes bad, right? And, uh, and Saruman ceases to be pardoned and ceases to be repentant. Um, yeah, I think that's really, uh, um, I think that, I think that's really neat. I think I, 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 I like that a lot. Um, and yeah, Kate, that's interesting. Uh, this softening of Saruman gets transferred to Lobelia. Uh, Kate says, yeah, exactly. The, it's, it's Lobelia who's going to be pardoned. Um, Lobelia who is going to, um, become the object of pity and, uh, and, uh, and change. Right. Um, yeah. So I'm not necessarily say this isn't necessarily one of those passages where I would say, I wish that Tolkien had kept it. Um, but I do love this. Uh, and, and that, that gesture of Mary's, I think is really, is so beautiful. Um, Tony, I think it's a good way of thinking about it. Mary showing himself as the future master of Buckland, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and it's kind of, it makes the end, it makes Sharky's end, you know, it makes the, the, the final um, violence by Saruman and to Saruman in the Shire um, seem even more tragic, right? To kind of think back to this alternate timeline in which Saruman repented, like, this is what might have happened, right? Gandalf gives him a last chance. This is why, right? Because because there's a there's a scenario in which it happens, right? Uh, it could have happened. It almost happened. In the end, it doesn't, right? And Arthur, I agree. It parallels the almost redemption of of of, of Smeagol in a sense. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, yeah. Okay. All right. I'm gonna I'm gonna end there. Um, we're, uh, we're over time now, even though I was a little late. Um, thanks everybody. As I said, I'll be away next week. So I'll see you guys again in a fortnight where I hope to finish our discussion. Uh, we, we at least will read through the end of, uh, uh, of the history of the Lord of the Rings. And of course we will get to discuss next week. I hope we will get to, uh, uh, the unpublished epilogue of the Lord of the Rings. So. All right. Thanks, everybody. I will see you guys in two weeks. Good night now.